is the RD Fanatic Podcast coming to you from beautiful Midtown Toronto on Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. A podcast where we talk to innovators in instructional design who are pushing the needle into the 21st century. Guest today is Ryan Laverty, the 23-year-old founder of Arist, short for Aristotle, I learned on another podcast recently, which is a text-based authoring system. I had a friend who had a non-profit that was operating in third-world countries with no web Wi-Fi access, but uh, they had cell phones and reached this population with some instruction. Uh, Ryan came to the rescue by developing a completely text-based course. Since then, it's been refined into a very specific kind of formula. Uh, there's an outgoing message of a certain number of words, and then there's a maximum of six subsequent multiple choice questions that can be asked, and the feedback for those also has a word limit on it. But that's as, as much as you can do. It's not supposed to take more than seven minutes a, a session, and a session might happen daily or it might happen every few days. So it's an intriguing instructional design concept. As I mentioned, Ryan is 23. That means he graduated high school five years ago and then went to a college that specializes in entrepreneurship. Obviously did very well there because he came out and founded this. So it got me thinking. Uh, when I was 23, it was 40 years ago, I was working in children's theater I had not produced a play, and I was in love, and life was going along pretty well, living in downtown Toronto with a group of funky friends, dancers, and artists, uh, all before I decided to start worrying about making a living. And that took me in a totally different direction that ended me up in instructional design. So, the discussion with Ryan goes in, in many different directions, but it's very intriguing. I find this approach to instructional design where you get to sleep on things between, uh, which is being shown by research to be very effective in terms of long-term retention. Anyway, without further ado, let's listen in on my conversation with Ryan. Hey. Um, remind, I, I can always cut out the beginning, but remind me where you're calling from. I'm calling from Toronto. Oh, I love Toronto. I was in um, I was in Montreal a few weeks ago. I've been to Toronto in years, but um, much much uh, much cleaner city than I'm. I'm in Manhattan right now. And Toronto is like I remember this, the first thing I remember when I got there it was like, oh my gosh, the streets are like gleaming yeah. because everything's so clean. <laughs> well, Manhattan's a lot cleaner than it used to be. That's also true. We were born in Manhattan. Where where did you come to the apple from? Sure. I was actually born in Rhode Island originally. Um, oh, yeah. I went to school in Boston and then I only lived in Manhattan for a few months. So new, newly uh, transferred oh. down here. Cool. Where did you have, are you sharing a place? How did, where you end up? Um, East Village. Um, yeah, I have a, a roommate and uh, oh. still living living here. That's great. Mm-hmm. No, I was, they used to have, uh, I, I was doing screenwriting for a while and there was a uh, international film festival market in new york that i used to volunteer at hmm. and i rented a, a, a basement in the east village while i was staying there oh no kidding what, <laughs> were, the, uh, what were the cross streets do you remember 
I don't remember. I don't remember. It's below 14th, but I don't know exactly where. Gotcha. I'm at 11th, so you probably weren't too far from me right now. Yeah. 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 Right around there. Yeah. No, it was a terrific place to be. That's awesome. Location. Oh, small world. Yeah. So, um, and Rhode Island, you know, my parents lived in Rhode Island. My brother was born there. He's uh, five years older than me. And I always, and they only came back to Toronto because the Korean War was on. My dad might have got drafted. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're Canadian. Mm. So, but being in the States, he might have, he was eligible or something. Mm. So uh, they came back here. But uh, otherwise, I was, I've always thought, well, if they'd have stayed, had I been born in Rhode Island, I probably got to New York in my teens. <laughs> <laughs> 20s as soon as I could kind of oh thing. yeah and a totally different life <laughs> do you remember where uh where in Rhode Island he was or where they were living there we're in Rhode Island they were in Providence oh okay yeah well I wasn't I was I grew up about 15 minutes north of there so not uh not too far yeah and I went to school at RISD so they came uh visiting and I met all their friends <laughs> Oh my gosh, cool. so cool. Yeah, gorgeous yeah, campus my, too. So my alternate reality. So you went to your high school, Cumberland High School. Is that in Rhode Island? Yep, that's in Rhode Island. And you were a senior oratorical, I'm looking here. You you have been uh, very out you're, you're very outgoing <laughs> go getter kind of guy, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you're pulling up stuff from years ago. Um yeah, yeah, that was a it was a competition they had all the seniors do. Yeah, years ago, but geez, not that many years ago. I mean, Babson College, that's the one in Boston. Mm-hmm. Does that specialize in entrepreneurial stuff? Yeah. Or did you just take a track? Yeah, for the most, it's a, it's a general business, business major, and then they do concentrations in entrepreneurship. Yeah. Yeah. No, it seemed like there was tons of opportunity for, for doing all sorts of stuff there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And uh, congratulations. You're in the Boston Innovators or Bostinos 25 under 25. Thank you. Yeah, that was like a that was like an award they did. Um, they do it every year, and so they just a lot of it is like student based, or it's just people. Oh, yeah. Schools in the area who've done something kind of um, that thought was interesting. How old are you now? Um, I'm 23. You're 23. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Well, really, congratulations on uh, everything you've got so far, including Arist. Arist. I came across Arist, I guess, last year or maybe earlier this year, I don't know, during the pandemic. And uh, I was really impressed with the uh, just the notion of delivering everything by text, although you do link out to videos and things for support materials, but all your instruction is by text. And, and the way that it started. So you had a friend who was in, involved with a nonprofit. Tell me more about that sort of yeah. process. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so essentially the way that that started was we were both living in like an entrepreneurship living community there. Um, I, at the time, was doing work where I was doing a lot of, like, public speaking training and coaching. And so yeah. I've always been really involved in that whole world. Is this in, in Boston? Uh, yeah. It was just something I was yeah. running myself um, while I was a student. And so I was, everything was, you know, remote. I was running it all online. Um, and so I was really kind of fascinated in that whole world of, like, kind of training design, learning design, uh, more, on the, more on the one-to-one coaching side, not on, like, the digital tooling or e-learning side of it. Um, and did you do any uh, instructional design, formal training in, in uh, at Babkin? No, they didn't have anything like that. I had read yeah. a bunch of stuff online and learned it that way, but I never took like a formal course on it. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, and so I had, you know, a friend of mine had been doing a lot of work um, with students abroad. And so he had kind of come to me and said, look, you know, this is really interesting. Um, is there some way we can kind of teach these students, uh, you know, something meaningful? And I think for me, as we started to look into it, it was fascinating because these students didn't have internet access or they had very limited internet bandwidth. Uh, um, I'm sorry. So who are the students? Um, so these were students in the uh, Yemeni war zone. And so he was running a nonprofit at the time, um, trying to figure out how to train students abroad um, who had really limited internet access or internet bandwidth. In just general education? Like, yeah, just, just uh, we were- we were kids? How old were they? Um, probably like teenager level, so middle school. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, and so we were really fascinated by this idea of, okay, how do we get educational materials, kind of basic like, um, help with college courses, those sorts of things, um, to students who might not have uh, internet access or internet bandwidth. And what we found was that, you know, for the vast majority of the world, um, you know, about, you know, 70% of the world did not have the uh, internet broadband strength um, for, yeah. you know, accessing something like even a YouTube video, um, or especially, you know, most MOOCs or online courses. I hear that uh, Elon Musk is working on that. That's true, he is. <laughs> Um, but for now, even especially a huge portion didn't even have, you know, the devices or anything else. Um, and this was, you know, this was way before that, especially. Uh, and so, you know, um, a lot of a lot of what we really focused on was, OK, it seems like 70, 75 percent of the world has access in some capacity to SMS or WhatsApp. If we can figure out how to build training that fits into this modality um, and is effective, then we can potentially teach, you know, billions of people all over the world. Okay, so there's two things in mind. One is what were you actually able to teach these kids in Yemen mm -hmm. this way? And and second, were there any precedents at that time uh, for doing this? Uh, and did you, as uh, as someone who was thinking about trying to develop training, did you have to overcome any sort of, uh, you know, mental impediments to the idea, oh, this, you can't do this, this, you know, you can, you can reach them, sure, but what can you do, you know, what kind of, what did you go through to get there? Yeah, yeah, good question. So I'll, I'll back up for a sec. Um, I think to your second question first, we were really kind of interested and said, this is cool, but we don't know. We, we don't know where it's going to go, right? It was very much kind of a project. We didn't have any experience with something like this. Um, and I remember we were doing a uh, kind of a test run or a dry run with um, 100 students at a school that we knew um, you know, just to see how they would react to this. And so the first mm -hmm. courses we built were on entrepreneurship and public speaking. And so both of them were more, the entrepreneurship course was more um, like term definition and kind of just simple knowledge retention. And so here's this okay. thing, repeat it back, right? Um, the public speaking course, which I had stolen materials from the things I'd done before for, yeah. that was more action prompts. And so, all right, day four is on confidence, go introduce yourself to a stranger on the train back when people commuted to work, right? Those sorts of yeah. things. Um, and so we, we launched those uh, in tandem just to see what kind of uh, result we would get just in terms of like interest or NPS score. And we found that was really fascinating was I think it was a little less than 80% of students um, said that not only do they like learning in this format, but they liked learning in this format better than um, when they had taken something via video or something that was more kind of visual and more long form. Uh -huh. So for us, we said, wow, you know, 80%, there's, there's something interesting here, right? We don't know what we can teach. Let's dive into it a lot more. Um, so something like introduce yourself to a stranger on the train. So that's, that's a very creative approach. 
to uh, trying to approximate something, I suppose, that might have been a classroom exercise. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's chancy as well. You don't know what the trains are like, where they live kind of thing. Just taking that one course, the public mm-hmm. speaking course. Talk about the development of that and the sort of the hurdles that you had to get past. Yeah. So for that one, I already had a lot of the content. Um, and what it really came down to was, all right, for this format, how do we pare things down without losing meaning? And how do we actually prompt people to take action? And I didn't call it this at the time. I call it this now. But um, what we essentially had created was this first really simplified version of, you know, like knowing, understanding, acting, reflecting. And that was kind of the four-step process there. And we really said, okay, within each you know, module or each day, each day being defined by when I get a few messages and spend like seven to 10 minutes per day on it at around the same time each day. And, you know, within within each of those modules, um, can you get me to either kind of know something and proven that I've understand it either by explaining it simply or by attaching it to something else? Mm. Or can you get me to prove that I've acted on it or taken some sort of exercise to better my understanding there? or at the end of all of that reflected on it, just depending on what it is, right? So for public speaking, we said, okay, it seems like um, action is really important here. I can tell someone that it's important to practice the pitch of their volume or their tone, but unless they can do it well, they haven't really mastered this skill, right? The skill is very little about knowledge retention. And so a lot of the focus was on things like, you know, pair up with a partner near you and have them, you know, grade you on these two or three things, or all right, day one through five is on speech writing. We're going to give you these topics and, you know, get out a timer, give yourself 60 seconds and a notepad and try to follow this framework for for structuring your speech quickly. And then you've got 30 seconds to speak it back to me. Right. Um, So in this area, I was more of a subject matter expert because of what I'd done before. And so we had all the content and all the structure to it. What I had to do was say, here's exercises I usually run with someone like on a Zoom call or on the phone. How do we put this into that format? And a lot of it in the early days, that that course was very like coaching kind of heavy, the way we adapted it, um, involved pairing up with someone else. Now, a lot of courses like that involve, you know, here's a few scenarios, text back, think more critically, um, they're more workplace oriented. So it becomes, you know, pair up with a colleague at work if you're practicing something like that, um, or self-grade yourself if it's, um, you know, something that's more kind of tangible. Like if I'm trying to become a better project manager, I could set out in the first day how my teammates have rated my project management skills, take something, and then ask them that again, right? So depending on the course, we have to get creative with what are those metrics of success, but usually we can find some, and usually there's things that the person can do themselves to kind of benchmark against it. So you went from what was kind of a coaching interface to a a sort of a pseudo-coaching interface or trying to reproduce that experience was there at some point that you, you went through, you say, you know, we're losing too much. You know, they don't really get the feedback or evaluation that I can give as a coach. Is it going to work? The short answer to your question is it's, it's different audiences. The longer answer is that, um, you know, in a world where we can take thousands of, of folks and have them all get their own coach, uh, it would be a more personalized experience. But for us, we were really fascinated by the idea of you know, how effective can we make something that is widely scalable, that's widely effective, and that we could use and have people dedicate time to. Because the thing that I found as a coach is that most people would come in, they would do like one session, they had, let's say, a big speech coming up, right? Um, They'd be really interested. And then they'd leave because they didn't care as much about the long-term development of it as, you know, really nailing this one presentation or one big pitch, right? 
And I think with with text messages, what we were focused a lot more on was, okay, I can give you that kind of one-time intensive feedback, but what we really want to do is build competency long-term and kind of give you these quick hits or small bites each day that will do that. I think what I also found is when we started to look into most e-learning that existed at the time, either a PowerPoint presentation, an in-person session of some kind, or a video online, they were all or mostly fitting to that model where it was some kind of longer intensive amount of information. It's over. There's very little follow-up or retention. And for us, we said, okay, if we take this entire thing and say it's not giant experience and then nothing, let's kind of spread this out over a longer period of time. Can we actually increase both the amount that people retain, but also the number of learnings that people will actually do or take on because they know that it's less of a time and mental kind of hurdle or bandwidth to overcome each day. How did, how did you get there? Was there some eureka moment when you woke up and said, ah, I know, we'll send it out every day? Yeah, I think it started with the creative constraint of like, we've got students who need something and we can't write that much, you know, and, and again, I mean, going from uh, here's a way to train, you know, students who are in war zones with limited internet to here's a way that Fortune 500 employees learn. Uh, the way that that ended up, that jump ended up actually happening was us putting out some of these courses and then just seeing people who we had, we had no idea that it was um, kind of under their subject domain start to pick these courses up. But the first was we had put out like entrepreneurship and public speaking courses and courses on things like architectural history. And I remember we had folks coming to us and saying, oh, can I try this for leadership or for compliance things like DEI or harassment prevention? And we thought about it and we said, well, courses, what we, the way we were thinking about it as of the time, the way we still think about it now, is that most courses have a lot of kind of learning theory, knowledge introduction, um, but very little action. Um, and then Ares course is really great for things where there's a good balance between new theory or knowledge introduction and action. It's more of a 50-50 split. And so we said, okay, anything that you're training a large group of people on with simple and standard concepts where you need people to kind of continually take action on those things, or there's a very pragmatic outcome I can tie to whatever I'm teaching you versus something much more theoretical or specialist or technical, um, then this model will be conducive to it. And so when someone said, all right, what I need to do is try to change the behavior of 10,000 people in the workplace so that they understand their biases more in DEI training, know those, and then make a small step every day towards becoming more inclusive, yeah, I mean, that that model actually works pretty soundly. It, it fits what we had designed for the public speaking course, right? Um, so again, I think that it, it all comes back to, you know, for us, we, we fit those creative constraints around, like, what types of content are best rather right. than, uh, and, and it was born out of a place of, like, we just, we can't send anything else because students won't, you know, they won't read anymore. They don't have the internet bandwidth to get anymore. Um, yeah. What it is now is it's a time constraint, not a, not a, a length constraint. And how much video gets, you know, linked in? On average, I would say folks will put a video, you know, one or two videos per like five modules in a course. Our best practices in video are twofold. One is we include videos as links to extra resources, not as the main content. If mm-hmm. you send someone a link right from the get go, probably about, you know, 15 to 20% of people will click on it. If you send someone really important info via a message, you know, like in text message form in Slack and MS Teams, um, over 90% will read that content. And so what that does is it says, look, we have kind of our core 
amount of users who, if we send them something really long form, they'll go read it, they'll go interact with it. But you want to take the most important content from that video or the reason I'm going to otherwise go watch it, make sure that that's in text. And then if you think this is something that needs to be visual or I need to see over video, then spend a lot of that bandwidth, you know, sending me into that link. And then the second part of that is never do a video that's more than five minutes. Try to keep it under like three minutes, especially if you can, and make that known to the learner. Um, E.g., hey, check out this three-minute video versus yeah. go watch this. Highly different uh, click-through rates. And so and th those are those are some of the biggest points of it. I think a lot of what it comes down to is a lot of folks will kind of lean on video too much. They'll just send it immediately. But you want to think of it as more, if I'm going to use video, I need that context setting up from in-text because they will for sure read the text. Mm -hmm. Now, another thing that interests me um, is uh, like I've recently I was uh, getting some training or being exposed to something called Mobile Coach, mm -hmm. which is a chatbot uh, authoring system, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, you can use it for various purposes and you can, you know, do courses or you can do reinforcement or facts or whatever. Um, but with Arist, you dictate how it should be. Like you have 600, I forget, words or characters or something available for an initial text. And then you've got your six multiple choice questions and you've got word or the character delimited responses there. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, and that that is, I'm, I'm right. Right. Every course has to follow that regimen. So how did you get to that? A lot of where that started from was we said, OK, we need a content length that you know people will still be interested in. They'll get a good amount of information, but places where they won't click out or drop off. And so for us right now, that initial module is twelve hundred characters, which is a little more than a screen length of content. And in the early days, we just sent out things with a bunch of different screen lengths and amounts, different types of content and just saw all the data relative to when people were dropping out. And what we found that was fascinating was when things were, you know, 1600 characters, right? Which was like two full screen lengths, immediate dropout, wall of text, a lot of people didn't read it. When they were four or five, 600, you know, decently high response and people going into it, but we couldn't fit that much content, right? And so for us, when we weighed those two levers, the place where we really saw the sweet spot for it was about a thousand characters. And we give people some leeway there now with the 1200 things like emojis and character counts. Um, but in our content guides, it even goes into, you know, 800 to a thousand characters for that initial module is really the ideal because it's both the length in which I can kind of see everything all at once on my phone screen, I can interact with it, but also I can fit a fairly substantive amount of content. As long as each module keeps being, which I think this is a good point to, to make as well here, um, the average course will have, you know, two or three responses, someone texting back after that initial module, um, and then they'll have a few more modules that come after it. And so in total, I might have, you know, three to four screen lengths of content, which if you think about it on a standard, you know, iPhone, Android phone, it's actually a lot of content to go through um, for me to interact with. And if you spend a lot of that content introducing new ideas to me, getting me to try them, apply them, give me a scenario, the sweet spot we really aim for in total is not as much content related. Those are kind of just training wheels to it. It's more time related. And so get me to take about seven minutes per day. And that's the ideal. If you look at Go One's state of learning report that actually came out last year, it says, look, you know, for, for the, the majority of users prefer modules that are 15 minutes or less by far and wide, like more than 70% of learners, um, <clears throat> excuse me. But um, even of that group, the majority of that group preferred engagements that were 
um, you know, either two to five minutes or like, I think it was five to eight minutes. And so really, really short bites and people like things that are just much more quick hit than they ever did before. And so for us, we always think about how can we kind of keep that, um, you know, that like seven, eight minute maximum as far as how long every engagement is going to take me. And so the seven minutes includes something like doing an action or if you're going to have me watch a video or something like that. It's all encompassing. Seems like an incredible constraint. Yeah, for sure. And it's again, it, it seems like something that when people first hear about it, they say, oh, I don't know if I can actually do that. But again, we want to think about learner attention first. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of it is just explain this to me like I'm 10 years old. OK, now let's let's add some more context, some more flavor, those sorts of things. Necessity is the mother of invention. What, what happens when somebody freeform texts? We actually are releasing soon the ability to grab specific learner questions or one-offs and respond to them in dashboard. Um, but we try not to have folks structure the course that way because we don't want to make the course creation experience really kind of hectic or confusing. Um, we think most things you can you can actually educate by by fitting into those buckets of a multiple choice or open-ended type question. And then for the one-off edge cases, you can have someone go respond to those folks. Heard some of your interview with uh, Nicole North, hmm? and I thought it was interesting. She talked about that she uses it for bridge training. So she, well, I, I'm calling it bridge training. You guys didn't call it that, but basically she had a classroom course and then used it. And there were like a few different sessions. Mm -hmm. And then she used it for reinforcement between sessions, as yeah. opposed to more normally you would talk about, oh, you have a classroom course and then use it for reinforcement afterwards. So I thought that was a really interesting application. We'll call them scaffolding courses if they're tying yeah. together a bunch of kind of one-off or different experiences. And we also see probably about 25% of all of our courses now are reinforcement courses, which have become big as folks kind of start to go back to the office, but aren't really in the office. Um, and so a lot of that is, okay, we've got these intensive experiences, LMS modules we've built out, but we recognize that a day or two after space learning takes effect, they forget 85% of the information. We need kind of these quick hits or these action steps built out over a longer period of time. Um, and so usually it's it's a way to kind of uh, justify a lot of the spend even on a more intensive experience because then <clears throat> then you can see the, the benefits long-term if you've continually reinforced those over weeks or months. There's something called CoachBit, which, which has a similar approach in that it's uh, text messages that are sent out daily. It's mainly for kids between I think grade four and grade 10 or something like that mm. um, to help them with schoolwork and my son's in grade 12 and I think the reason it might work with the younger kids is because their their schedules are more sort of more typical uh, my son has so much going on that it's hard to even commit to a daily time to look at something mm -hmm. and then myself I did Noom Noom the diet thing and they're basically are using the same kind of system. They're sending out daily texts and there's an action item, but the action item of tracking your food is so time consuming yeah. and uh, demanding yeah. that it, I mean, it definitely gets you over that seven minute mark. And uh, I gave up on it because it was just, you know, we, we too much bother. Another reason that didn't work for me was the chumminess of the text. So it's like, hi, I'm, and they give the coach a name kind of thing. And they say, today, we're going to do such and such and good work and messages like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you use that kind of language as well or or, or what? It, it depends on, I always hate to give the, it depends. It does depend on the audience and on the creator. I think again, this goes a lot back to, for us, 
you know, we'll, we'll use a lot of that content, but we don't just push it out. We'll put it in templates, give it to a course designer of some kind and say, look, here's a sample or template course, you know, your audience better, you know, have free reign with it. And what we've seen, and again, a huge part of the product for us is the ability to copy courses very easily, edit them in real time because you're editing text, especially we've seen a career development course, for example, I saw that was very successful, copied and created for four different types of decision makers within an organization. And they said, okay, for the bottom two tiers here, we think that they're going to respond better to more friendly handholding. These are like interns up to new managers, right? For our higher, you know, executive level, we need, hey, it's this, do this thing. Like the most kind of punchy, actionable two to three minutes. And so, you know, a, a few years ago, I did a degree in cognitive science and came out sort of looking very carefully at how game uh, video games uh, affect cognition and found, you know, different kind of games that supported uh, executive function or supported reading or whatever. And uh, this guy approached me about using video games or games of some sort for numeracy training mm -hmm. because he was interested in uh, a large illiterate uh, population of, of women in third world countries who were you know involved in micro lending and uh didn't necessarily had to know how to deal with the banks or 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 have basic numeracy skills i was wondering if you approached anything about numeracy with arist yeah, yeah, for sure. We actually, we've done a number of, um, still still about, I'd say 20% of all of our use cases are things that are kind of core to what we originally started with. And so we'll do, we'll donate a lot of in-kind services and see things like financial literacy training in Costa Rica. We actually have done that use case of training on literacy and um, numeracy in India to rural um, farmers, specifically potato farmers. For something like numeracy or basic literacy, you have to keep it really, really simple because especially if you're teaching yeah. someone how to read, they can't you're read using anything, text right? to right. You're using yeah. text, you know, and the, the, the irony is not lost on me there, you know? And so um, you've got to keep it really simple. We've done creative things like um, like audio files or basic kind of audio file embedding in the messages. But I would say um, for the most part, for something even like numeracy, you want to give lots of quick exercises, quick heads, keep things like really, really short and simple for something like financial literacy, which we've seen a lot of it's yeah. what's a credit card, how to open a bank account, right? what's a credit score and why is that important? Um, and again, those are things that like, I can understand them very quickly if you explain it simply and I can go take action on them. Like nothing's gonna teach me more about financial literacy than if I do have to step-by-step step, go open a bank account or go look at my credit score um, or, or create a simple budget for what I'm spending that week. And so it's immediately applicable. I think that's the power of using this medium specifically. Okay, so I think our time is, is rapidly closing. What do you see happening next in the trajectory of this kind of training? We've actually, we've delivered a lot of courses to folks with disabilities, folks who are um, either hard of sight or hard of hearing. And for the mm -hmm. folks who are hard of sight, you can, because we're sending messages just in like SMS or WhatsApp, um, we have all of the accessibility capabilities that they do. And so you could say something like, hey, Siri, read me my Aris text this morning, right? And then it will, as my phone goes off, as I say that, um, it'll go through and it'll read you step-by-step step what that is. Um, more kind of future looking with things like um, AI. And so things that could help you just build these quick course experiences. If you said, hey, I'm Mitch, here's some basic background about me. I'm trying to create a course on these things in this many days that gets me to this learning objective. And because at this point we've fed artificial intelligence over a hundred thousand days of created text message course content, 
if it can say, okay, here's kind of a basic recommended either scaffolding, or if you've fed me your scaffolding, here's some basic ways I've pared down your content. Here's at first pass the ways I've reduced wordiness and everything you've written. We can create a really powerful um, aid to an instructional designer. So you can spend time on kind of the, the high level thinking, the strategy around when to deliver something mm -hmm. and something can help you with the tedious parts of it. Um, we also are working on a lot of ways just to um, like NMAS notify or enroll users to get completion course rates up. And so if you think about a world in which you could go into a Slack DM or a Teams DM in the workplace and say, I want to learn this and this and this. And we say, okay, in there, here's your course registry. Here's all the things your company offers. Select this, right? You create an environment where no one ever has to leave um, the, the messaging system or ever has to go to a link to sign up to everything. And we've even seen and built some basic applications of that in emerging markets. And so you could text, let's say, financial literacy to a number, you get back your messages and everything is succinct that way. Um, and so we are working on a lot of applications that just increase the rate at which people sign up, engage, enroll. But kind of our North Stars there are keep it in messaging. You can take stock of what people already use, what they know how to use um, in the tools they use every day and really just bring that learning to people rather than forcing people to go and find the learning. Yeah. I gotta say, that's really exciting. And again, congratulations. Well done. Uh, look forward to seeing what happens in a few years. Of course. Thanks so much, Vincent. And thanks so much for having me on. Thanks a lot. The ID Fanatic podcast drops the first Tuesday of the month. Subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. I invite you to join my LinkedIn page, ID Fanatic, for the blog and for links to free online resources of interest to instructional designers. You can contact me, Mitch Moldovsky, on LinkedIn, and I hope that you and yours have a totally awesome week. Bye, bye, bye.